Welcome to Pharma Launch Secrets, a podcast by Evermed. We host direct, actionable conversations with world-leading pharma launch experts that will help you launch your next product or indication successfully. Now, here's your host, Bozidar Jovicevic. Hello, and welcome to a new episode of the Farmer Launch Secrets podcast. Today, I am joined by Chris Savage. Chris is the co-founder and CEO of Wistia, a video marketing company that he launched back in 2006 and has helped many businesses since then thrive with video. Chris also hosts the Talking Too Loud with Chris Savage podcast, which has been going since 2020 and has over 50 episodes available online now. Welcome, Chris. Thank you for having me. All right, I have so many questions to ask you about video. So you've been observing this space. You probably have a really unique <laughs> view about all this. <laughs> and I love Wistia as a product. Thank you, thank you. So let's go into about how business world sees video and the power of video. If you had a magic wand, what is the one thing that large companies, Fortune 500 companies would realize about the power of video? I think the thing that I would try to instill is if you've been making videos with a team, with a production team, or you've been making videos with agencies, you get used to spending a lot of money on every video, especially if you're a big company. You want your launch videos to be perfect. You want your events to be perfect. All of that makes perfect sense. And you should keep doing that. But I think there's also a really big opportunity and actually an expectation now across your entire customer journey that the, the world has changed, right? Like COVID has changed the world. And one of the things that it did is it made people realize that they have made the audience and the potential customer realize that they have choice. They have choice over how they consume content. They don't have to go to an in-person event. They can go to an event online and they expect that they will have that option. They expect that they can read how something works or they can listen to how something works or they can watch to learn how something works. And I think when you really think about what the how that expectation has shifted fundamentally, it opens up all these other opportunities for where you should be using video to connect with your customer. But if you're only thinking top-down, highly produced video, you're going to miss a lot of those opportunities. And so what I wish more big companies would figure out is that they, of course, they should do that. They should do the top-down, high-production stuff, but they also need to empower their team. And they need to empower a lot of people in the organization to be making content themselves. And that is one of the ways you can fill this gap between meeting those expectations that customers have and, and the content that you actually have available for your potential customers. It's an interesting point that you're making of the high production videos. Within the pharma and healthcare industry, typically right now today, pharma executives, if you tell them produce 10 videos, their mind will go, whoa, that will cost me half a million dollars. That will cost me 50K per video. And that means there will be a studio video, studio recorded, scripted on that, there's a lot of strategy. So what are some of the ways to kind of using some sort of an 80-20 rule to end up having, and these are videos that basically doctors teaching other doctors typically, right? About something new. What are some of the ways to have those videos produced at a lower cost? Is it to avoid video and have remote recording? But how do you ensure that then video is pretty and then audio and video quality is there and everything? So Yeah, so there's a lot of different ways now, I would say. I think remote recording is a good one. You can have people be in different locations and you can have you can find someone local to set up the lights and the microphone and you're going to get a much higher quality feed and you can record using lots of different tools. 
and allow the you know, remote production is a good way to do it. I think also basically having be willing to lean on talking heads. Like, yes, the doctors are going to be the people who are saying this stuff, but you need someone who's thinking like a producer. So you can do what I've seen done many times, which I think is a highly effective way to decrease the price, is basically say like, all right, we're going to set up one set and we're going to have five different doctors come in for that day and each person's going to be on camera for two hours. And we're going to prep the questions and do a lot of work up front and we're going to make sure that we're going to end the day with like a huge amount of content. And we've given them the confidence that if they look good on camera, they can just focus on their message. And that's also, I think, a big thing. Like People are often afraid of being on camera. Even experts, they're afraid of being on camera. And, obvious, and often people are also, some of those people are afraid of public speaking. And one of the tricks is like if you can get the quality of the video to look high enough, People stop worrying about it, and they just think about the message, which ultimately, if they're an expert, that's what they normally are doing day to day. So you're not trying to ask them to do something that's like out of their wheelhouse. Yes, exactly. Doctors actually got very used, we were talking about creators within doctors. They got used when COVID hit in 2020, and they typically use PowerPoint slides and talking head at the big conferences. So then the big conferences were recorded and videos were sent, and then they were streamed to see me live. That's what happened in most of these conferences. So they're quite used to like slide deck and them talking. Now getting into a studio with a little bit of a different format can also work, I mean, as long as there are some slides. <laughs> so I think maybe those slides could be, I know one of your products, I think uh, that we saw that kind of divides the screen in half. So you have like a person on one side and then it doesn't need to be like a full slide deck with a little head. It can be just just something from the slide deck, some visual, something. To- it's a cutaway. It's basically like, yeah, I think you're talking about, we have two products around this that can help. One called Soapbox, one called Wistia Live. What we've been building with our products is basically trying to create tools so that the things that like live video, the news has been using forever, <laughs> where it's if you just had an anchor sitting at a desk and you never had the cutaways, it would be pretty boring. But often, like they're talking and then they cut to something that is approximately what they're talking about. It's not exactly word for word on like all timed out or what have you. But ultimately, you end up feeling like you're seeing something much more engaging just because you're switching the stream of the different things you can say. So we've built tools to do that so that you feel more confident that you can say, all right, here's, a, here's somebody, they're full screen of camera, they look great, whether it's a remote setup or in person, they want, you have them confident there. And then, yeah, you bounce between them, a third of their face, two-thirds of slides, or the whole screen and the feed is just the slides and back and forth, that gives you lots of edit points and it also just makes it easier to make something that's more compelling out of the gate. I think we're going to see more and more and more tools and tech come to help with this because it's just that it's this democratization of production where we're doing things that the news anchors were doing 10 years ago, but we're doing it with software in the browser. And there's a lot of other stuff that's happening today that we're not close to yet. There's holograms, all this crazy stuff. And like, we'll get to those things in the next five to 10. And the goal, the difference will be that you can be an average person who is not a video expert and you could still get on camera and make something that looks good. Yeah, that is actually great to hear. I mean, the point to make is the democratization of the creation. I feel like, you know, all these new generations are so great at video editing. They create video for TikTok and this and that. It's like amazing, the skill set that they have for video editing. It's incredible, the skill set they have, and they're doing everything on mobile. Yes. And all of those people, especially we talk a lot about Gen Z on TikTok, right? Like, 
what's going to happen? Well, they're in the workforce. They're going to get promoted. They're going to be in charge of teams. And it's almost like millennials expected video. They, they said, I expect that video is valuable, where I feel, feel like Gen X like didn't as much because they didn't grow up with it as much. Millennials expect that video is worthwhile. Gen Z expects they can make it themselves. And so as they work through the workforce and they become more senior over time, it changes from like, should we have this? So of course we have, we should have this to how should we make it? Some of, a lot of it we can make ourselves. Those are big differences. And now nowhere in here am I saying that we're not still going to do the high budget video. That's going to happen too. I think it's just, that's why it, for me, it all comes back to the expectation of the audience. Like the audience wants to choose how they consume and how they consume content. And that's really important to meet those expectations, right? Like New York Times, I look at the New York Times all the time. New York Times, you can just scan and read the articles. There is a daily podcast called The Daily that's the one most important story each day. And if you just want that, you get 25 minutes, you get to listen. Or you can go watch effectively their like video channel for all of the updates. So you literally get to choose. And they're a little bit ahead of the curve, but I expect that as that happens across all media, that will, of course, make its way into business. It'll be B2C first, how it always is, and then it becomes B2B. And so that, that is the transition. So it's not that hard to predict what's going to happen. The question is when are those expectations there? And if you're late, you miss out on it. And if you're early, you take advantage of it. And it's kind of that simple. So you highlight the New York Times as one of the examples that's ahead of the curve in terms of offering different modalities, like shorter, longer, more traditional, more modern ways. That's how it sounds like. I definitely want to check it out after this. And then in terms of using video for, for business and marketing purposes, like moving someone from not even knowing about even the problem or having awareness about your company and solution to knowing about the product and becoming a customer. So basically using videos for conversions along, let's say, let's call it the funnel. So what are some of the things that you see frameworks that work around that? Is there anything about the length of the videos, type of the videos that work, given that everyone is so busy and everyone is like summaries? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So... I would say when you're looking at conversions, you're someone's deeper in the funnel, right? Like they're already on your website. You're trying to get the, the valuable traffic on your website to understand whatever it is at that moment in the funnel. And your goal is if you actually get them to understand it better, you believe that more of them should convert. And so it's kind of that simple. There isn't a really prescriptive like length of time for video at that moment. If you asked this question four years ago, I would have, this is what I would have said. I would have said, shorter is better. Like shorter videos have higher engagement. And that is what the data says. Like the shorter the video is, the higher engagement you can get. And so the more likely someone finished the, the video with momentum of like, what should I do next with this brand? What's happened in the last four years is that the short form video has made its way to like a fundamental entertainment platform. TikTok, Instagram Reels, YouTube Shorts. People are spending an enormous amount of time on this stuff, and they're literally going second by second. So it's like you get a thing, you look at it for half a second, you don't like it, you swipe up, you don't like it, you swipe up, you like something, you watch it for 10 seconds, 30 seconds, maybe you go deeper in that creator or not. But there's another interesting trend that's happening at the same time, which is that as the proliferation of content and production of content has changed so much, like anyone can be a creator, there can be content on anything, our expectation right, is that we can watch things and that like if you if you go to YouTube and you have some super specific like I got insulation installed in my house in the last couple of days because there was no insulation in part of the roof. It was super cold in the winter. We need to get the insulation. 
my expectation is I can go to YouTube. I can look up the specific in, the installation. I can have people reviewing it. I can have people tell me how toxic a thing is or not, how long I have to wait before. I expect that, and I would be shocked not to find something like that. And if I'm at a moment where I'm making a big decision, like the insulation, stand the insulation thing, it's expensive. I have to leave my house, all these things. I'm willing to watch 30 minutes of content, an hour of content, two hours of content if it's going to make me more confident making the decision. And so bringing that back to your business, what this means is if people have no connection to your brand yet, shorter is better. If they have a deep connection, they're deep in the buying process, actually you can go with much longer form content. You might have a very small number of people engaging with that long form content, but those are probably the most likely people to actually purchase. And so you have to think about it as a spectrum of like where people are. And you're also going to be more likely to get someone to watch long form if they've engaged their short form stuff and they like it. Got it. Clear. And also what you mentioned is also a high consideration purchase, if you will, right? You know you will do it and you will not do it like every year. And it's like a big decision. So you'd rather spend two hours there than spending 200 hours and switching it up towards. I think the other thing that's happened is that we used to rely on sales reps to be the expert helping us figure out what to do in the sale. And all the evidence is that people do an enormous amount of research before they're talking to your rep. So the job of the rep is different too. And I think that's a really important thing to recognize. Like, If the expectation is you can find the content and you can watch it, you can understand it, when you talk to that rep, you're going to have more specific, often more technical questions or more niche questions that are often harder to answer because you're deeper in the funnel. Like You're deeper into the buying process before you're actually having a conversation. Got it. So that's one of the things that we are educating the market right now. And, and it boils down to video plus a sales rep is better than a sales rep because the way that we are used to consume content and doctors are human beings as well, meaning get to stay up to date, is to first engage with content and then with human beings. So we call it content-led engagement. What have you found or are there any examples of companies that are using video well to kind of drive those conversions and make video plus sales rep like work better together? I mean, we see this all over the place. I see tons. A lot of our customers are software, software businesses, technology companies. We see tons and tons and tons of technology companies doing this. And it's funny because it doesn't necessarily, from the outside, it's like, all right, they're, run, they're running a lot of webinars. They're doing a lot of live events. Or their sales team is making a lot of videos. And they're basically going across the customer journey and making it possible for you to have that option to watch whenever you want that option or that option to more deeply understand. HubSpot does this really well. Starbucks does this. Like A lot of different companies are doing it. And it basically is just an embracing of the medium. And then once you do that, it's kind of like I used to say, it's kind of like if there was a moment when design didn't matter on the web, because it was just too early and there wasn't enough competition. And then there was a moment when it mattered. It turns out, if you have a choice of a thing that's well-designed, a thing that's poorly designed, we're human beings. We like things that are well-designed. I think the same thing is true with video. It's like, there was a moment when you didn't need to have it, and now the expectation is there. And so, if you had to pick which, are you, which brand you're going to engage with, you're going to engage with the one that is educating you and it's easy for you to understand and you know they have the confidence and expertise to explain all the different things across all parts of their funnel. And so it's kind of this whole massive shift. A lot of people talk about this as the shift to marketing like a media company 
I think that's a good way to put it, but no one knows what media company means anymore. So it's confusing I, them. <laughs> I, I think it's almost a, the simplest way I can say it is if you're trying to advertise on a podcast because the podcast has an audience and you want to get in front of that audience, it's become so cheap to create the content that's high quality that's actually often cheaper than instead of advertising on someone else's podcast, you just make your own. And that dynamic, when you really think deeply about it, you realize that's changing the entire market. And it's actually early days. Like people haven't really, I see some companies that are figuring this, that are starting to figure it out, but it is still early days for folks like doing it really consistently, not seeing it as a stunt. And the companies that are, are having a ton of success, which makes sense because they're ultimately just meeting customer expectations. Okay. And then in terms of platforms and delivery of those videos, YouTube, okay, biggest video place in the world. A lot of ads, maybe not designed for every use case, like doctors teaching doctors, maybe not the best. And then question, so where do you see the role, especially in the context of a funnel, of YouTube versus an ad-free environment? Because especially with Vistio, is offering a different experience. When should like a pharma marketeer thinking launching new drug and typically what's when you think of the funnel, and that's how we educate the market, it has three steps. So one is Top of the funnel, we don't use the term, but that's like typically disease education. So you're producing videos to educate doctors on what's new with the disease. Like maybe there is a new diagnostic biomarker. Maybe there is something. That's also done before the launch of a product because you are not allowed to talk about a product. Second is like product education. Now you're talking about efficacy, safety, etc. And then comes the sales rep is driving product adoption. So it's like a video, disease, video on product, and then sales rep. So how to even think like, okay, I want to have this number of videos for... First pillar and second pillar, YouTube or no YouTube, ad free. Should I create a content hub, conversion hub? And then I see all the data. I saw somewhere like Marketo study that they would kind of do lead scoring based on number of videos watched. Like, how would you think of that? Okay. So, the way to think about it is you want to think about your owned audience and your rented audience. The owned audience is going to be people who are deeper in your funnel on your website or on a content hub or a microsite you've created, but they're spending more time. They know they're spending it with you. They're coming, they're trying to learn more. They could get there from any different way. Word of mouth, they could get there from an ad, they could get there from social media, they could get there because you sent them an email, whatever the thing is. And then there's the rented audience, which is on all the social platforms. You want to use the social and entertainment platforms to get people's attention. And to do that, you need to build audiences in those different places. And then you need to bring them back. You basically need a strategy that works on both. So YouTube is a social platform, and I would evaluate your efforts there in a similar way that you evaluate your efforts on LinkedIn, or you evaluate your efforts on Instagram, or TikTok, or any of the other platforms that you consider using. That's how you should look at it, because it is pretty hard to get the traffic from YouTube to your site. In fact, a lot of the algorithms, YouTube forever has been saying like hours watched on the platform is what infers how much your video is going to be recommended. And that doesn't just mean hours watched of your content. It means someone watches your content and then they watch 30 minutes of something else, they watch 20 minutes of something else. If that happens, they're going to recommend your content a lot. They don't want people to leave because they can't serve ads. They're trying to build a closed ecosystem and everyone's trying to do this. Actually, a trend we've seen in the last six months is that social posts that have links in them perform worse than ones that don't in general. So like if you don't have a link, you're not asking someone to come back to your site. They recommend it more. And this makes sense because it's more time on the platforms. You want to make content that lives in those places well. 
and is engaging that audience there and ultimately builds a strong connection to your brand or a concrete reason why they would come back to you to learn more or go deeper in the funnel. I would imagine kind of to, to go back to what you were saying, a lot of the disease education, is that what it's called? Is that right? Yeah, it's called DSC, the disease state education. That's the official term. Okay. Yeah. A lot of that is get, you're going to be trying to get people when they're browsing and doing other things the other places they hang out. And then as they start to see that as an issue, and they say, well, I need to be informed as a doctor, and I need to have the better answers, and I need to understand what these studies look like, and I need to understand what these drugs look like, then that's the moment you can convince them, like, hey, come to my site and go deeper and come to this event. We're going to do Q&A with us and with our team. And you're, they're actually going to come, and they're actually going to learn, they're going to, and they're going to be so deep in the funnel. That stuff, you should be using something like us or any platform that's designed to help you like build the owned audience. And it's important because when you use a platform that isn't social, on your site, you can do all. You can get a bunch of other data to understand its performance. So you can look at it and you can tie it into HubSpot, Marketo, and see like, all right, if people come and they did engage, how many of them got further into the funnel? What can we follow up with them next? You're giving that data to your sales rep, but you can't do that on YouTube, obviously, and they're not, and it doesn't make sense for it to be there. So you just have to think about those things separately and then evaluate the social channels against each other. And I think just this is a side note, but the big thing that's happening right now is that TikTok is a huge threat to YouTube because there's a huge amount of search that's happening on TikTok and an enormous amount of time that's happening on TikTok. And what everyone's trying to figure out is like, where should the base of their social content live? Should it be on YouTube or should it be on TikTok? And the fundamental difference is that TikTok is an entertainment platform. Social following count doesn't matter at all. So today, and this could change, but today you upload content, you have zero followers, it can still be seen by 30,000 people, million people. That cannot happen on YouTube, like you don't go viral that way that you used to because it's all tied to the connection to the creator. So that's the a fundamental threat, and that's what everyone's trying to respond to. The smart strategy on the on the rented platforms, on the social platforms, is just trying to figure out which one is going to win next, and you put your effort into that. And that's also the faster you act there, the more you have the potential of an outsized return. Got it. very clear. And then along those lines, just to make it very specific, so let's say I'm a pharma marketeer, I have a launch coming in six months. It's huge pressure, always 10 years of research, one to two billion dollars, hundreds of scientists <laughs> working on that. Now I'm designing what you just said. So I'll start with some videos and put them where doctors are. Doctors have their own also social media platforms like in US called Doximity or they go on Medscape, like which is a content site. So let's say I put like disease related and then my goal is to get attention, like qualify them and send a click to own, but owned platform, so own content hub, let's say. So now doctors are there. At what point would you ask them for email address? Typically, doctors are very difficult to leave their email addresses because they understand that everyone is chasing them. So would you give them a little bit of content first? Yeah, I mean, I would give them some content and then I would ask them if you want to go deeper into this or like the longer form versions of these things. I mean, ultimately it's about... This is interesting because I don't spend that much time thinking about doctors in this setting, but I think about a lot of other like B2B, B2B careers. One of the things that people forget with the content that they're making is that ultimately, if you're making really educational, great content and your product delivers on what it says it's going to do, you're actually helping someone else's career. Like If I'm trying to grow my business or I'm trying to get more leads or I'm trying to get more traffic, or in this case, trying to get more doctors to sign up, and you can actually help them do that, 
that's going to help, help increase the likelihood of success of their business. That's going to maybe get them their promotion. That's going to get them more budget. That's going to get them more clout, what have you. I don't see why that isn't the same thing also with doctors where it's like, hey, if you are a better practitioner and you're more up to date on the newest things that are there and you're going to better take care of your patients and that's ultimately going to drive more patients back to you or change your hourly rate over time or get you in the, the context where you're writing papers and people are referencing them or whatever. It's kind of the same thing. So at some point for those people who care, they'll happily trade an email if they're getting something that's really educating them and taking them to the next level. I think this is also why webinars have, are forever, have stuck around. People don't like webinars usually. It's like webinars suck, they're boring. How do you make a webinar that looks good? Yet, when you ask people who do them, a huge percentage of the companies do them. If you get 100 people to go to a webinar, you feel pretty good about yourself. You're like, that's a lot of people spending a bunch of time with me. And someone's happy to trade an email for that so they won't miss the event or they'll get the content after the fact. So I think just simple things like that can have a big impact. But you just the carrot has to be the right carrot for someone to sign up. Got it. Very clear. And then... How do you stay up to date on all things uh, video and content? Because you mentioned a few things that are big trend, like democratization of content, the new tools, probably there'll be different ways to look at it from a network effects perspective and all these kind of things. How do you stay up to date on everything apart from seeing every your data and the platform? I am a customer also. My podcast, Talking Too Loud, is a great example of something where Every other week, we're releasing an episode. We, sh- we started shooting on audio to make it really easy during COVID. And then over time, we started releasing the Zoom recordings. And then over time, we started increase the quality of those. And I'm on all the platforms, and I'm sharing all the stuff, and I'm realizing things like, oh, the right clips are the difference between an episode doing well or not, or the speed with which we grow our subscriber base. And so I am using all these tools myself. I am actually the customer. I, th- I see myself, part of my job is like to be chief content creator. And I have to pay attention to it. We also help marketers. That's our core, the core customer that we help. And so they're all asking us what's next, and they're pushing us, and they're also telling us what they want. So part of it is what they're asking for. Part of it's the research. Part of it's doing it myself. Part of it's looking across the customer base. I just think there's no substitute for getting into it and doing the work yourself. I think it's easy as a company scales to feel that you must give, of course, to scale you have to delegate and you have to hire great people to take things on and do them better than you. But there are certain things that you have to, you have to stay close to. And, and this is one of those things for me that's just like, I have to. I also happen to like love doing it, so it makes it easy. Yeah, it's very similar to here at Evermint as well, by the way. So because I've been in the industry for 17 years, so it's far more also enjoy the content and I believe in the power of it also so and also kind of making things modern because in healthcare the bar is relatively low when it comes to quality user experience and all that the content from these doctors is just precise scientific balanced you know everything credible everything that needs to be and there is a lot of room to improve on the UX side and then so some closing questions very rapid fire questions uh, to get to know a little bit more about you what's your favorite industry or video industry buzzword of the year 2022? Favorite industry buzzword? I think probably a generative video. Oh, very cool. I was actually researching generative a few days ago and reading NFX topic and uh, logs on that. What's the best book you've read in the last 12 months? Oh, wow. Best book in the last 12 months. Or the one that comes to mind when you think like really books that affected you? 
I mean, there's been a lot that have affected me at different times. Like Clayton Christensen is a classic that comes back again. Innovator's Dilemma, and thinking about that from the perspective of being a small company startup, thinking about that from the perspective of being a company, making sure we're not disrupted. Yeah, I also go back to there's this great book that's called Masters of Doom, and it's about the two founders of Doom, the video game, and how they scaled and grew and had this magic of having like the right core founding team and how far it can go. And it ultimately like splintered off and had all these, this trouble and stuff. But it's, that's a great one because most people have never read it, never think about it. But I feel like it's just a really nice tale of like what happens when you have a really small, really high functioning team, like what you can do. I'm definitely putting it on the list. And what's the type of music or song that you go to when you need some inspiration? I feel like everyone goes to different things. I I have been listening to, speaking of generative, if I'm trying to focus, I've been using listening to some generative music. There's this app called Endel, E-N-D-E-L, that makes music for you in real time based on like your heart rate and like your calendar and how much you're moving around, all this crazy stuff. And it seems silly, but I actually like it. In terms of like what brings me back, I feel like when I was, or music from the early 2000s and 90s, when I was like a teenager and like, and then in my early 20s. And a lot of that music is like the stuff that just like hits me the hardest, like the best that brings me back. And so, what if I'm looking for stuff? It's like the pop punk of that era and stuff like that is what really brings me joy. Yeah. But I listen to tons of different stuff. Great. Similar, similar for me because I'm uh, maybe around similar at that time when I was a teenager. Yeah. And then Brain.fm also for this kind of weird oh, yeah, music that's that, cool. yeah. that works mm-hmm. for me. And then who in the world of video marketing would you most take out for lunch? I think I would probably today, I would say I'm really into comedy podcasts. It's interesting what I said before, what happens in first in entertainment and then B2C and then B2B, like it takes time for this stuff. A lot of the comedy podcasts are... Inc- look incredible. They're all on video. They're all video first. There's a guy, Rick Glassman, who I love, who's outrageous, not safe for work. But the production quality of the stuff he's making is really great. He's built this like incredibly passionate audience. And I would love to like talk to those people because I think that is where we're going. It's like you're making tons of long form content. It looks amazing. It's funny. It's genuine. And then it's being repurposed and put in all these different platforms and all these different ways. And like, how do you find the right threads to keep working on stuff? Like that's probably where I would go. Cause I think that that's, what's going to be happening over the next five years. Well, and then where can people find you online? Last question. So I'm on Twitter at C Savage, or you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm posting a little bit more there, there those days, which I think is just, you just search for Chris Savage, you'll find me. And you can find my podcast, Talking Too Loud at Wist.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So definitely tune in and let me know what you think. Thank you, Chris. It's been an absolute pleasure. We covered a lot, a lot of specific questions. So thank you so much. It's going to be very valuable for the audience and talk soon. Thank you so much. This is fun. This podcast was brought to you by Evermed. Evermed offers pharma companies the fastest path to having their own Netflix-like on-demand video engagement hubs for doctors or patients. Make sure to search for Pharma Launch Secrets in Apple Podcasts or Spotify and click on the follow icon so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Evermed, thanks for listening.